Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. On Tuesday, an 18-year-old gunman shot and killed 19 children and two adults at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, less than two weeks after 10 people were killed in a racially motivated attack at a grocery store in Buffalo. And while America has a very visible and unique problem with assault weapons and mass shootings, events like Tuesday or the shooting in Buffalo don't paint the full picture of gun violence in America. In 2020, over 45,000 people died from gun-related injuries. Over half of those deaths were suicides. Arguably, the most frustrating part about gun violence in America is the lack of response from lawmakers. It happens over and over and over. And even if we didn't have a filibuster in the Senate or an increasingly polarized Congress or a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, Reasonable-sounding policies like universal background checks or licensing requirements or age limits, they wouldn't be enough to make a difference in reducing gun deaths, not to the level that people want to reduce them to. If we want to be on par with other developed countries, we need to reduce gun deaths by more than 71%. And to do that, we need to dramatically reduce the use of handguns in the country. And implementing policies to reduce access to these firearms or to buy back ones that are already out there is essentially politically impossible. So this runs deeper than specific policy proposals. We need to look at the root of the problem, the reason why guns are so pervasive in our culture. Part of how we do that is understanding the legal foundation and interpretations of the Second Amendment. Last fall, our colleague Ian Milheiser spoke with two scholars about the history of the Second Amendment to figure out the legal grounds for today's current gun laws. We're replaying that conversation for you today. The Second Amendment begins with four words, a well-regulated militia. It's a very unusual amendment in that regard because it states up front why it exists. As the Supreme Court said in United States v. Miller, the obvious purpose of the Second Amendment is to assure the continuation and render possible the effectiveness of militias. And the amendment must be interpreted and applied with that end in view. But that all changed in 2008. D.C. v. Heller, which was decided 217 years after the Second Amendment was ratified, was the first Supreme Court case in American history to hold that the amendment process protects an individual right to own a gun for personal use. Yet, while Heller was a sea change in American constitutional law, it was also only a partial victory for the gun lobby. Justice Anthony Kennedy insisted on some fairly broad limits to gun rights. But Kennedy's now retired, and the court is now far more conservative than it was in 2008. And so that brings us to the case that is in front of the Supreme Court right now, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which asks the justices to significantly expand the scope of the Second Amendment. And with Republican appointees holding six of the nine seats on the court, it is very likely that huge swaths of America's gun laws will fall. So let's talk about how we got here and what it means for the future. I've got two experts to speak about the Second Amendment. My first guest is Joseph Bloker. He's a law professor at Duke and the co-author of the Positive Second Amendment, 
Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller. And then later, I'll talk with Carol Anderson. She's an historian, a professor of African-American studies at Emory, and the author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. I hope you enjoy both of these conversations. And with that, here's my talk with Professor Joseph Bloker. Joseph Bloker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to start by just reading the text of the Second Amendment. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So what was the function of the militia that the framers thought was important, so important that they wrote it into the Constitution? It's a great question, Ian. You could have picked any one of those 27 words and we could fill an hour of conversation about it. Um, the central question really in the Supreme Court's landmark decision, District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, really is about that issue. What were the militia? What are they now? Um, who, do we, uh, who do we think is encompassed in that term? I'd say there's two competing visions. Um, one is that the militia referred to what we would today call the organized militia, sort of the you know founding era equivalent of arguably the National Guard, albeit more organized organized and more state affiliated. That's one view. Another view is that it's the so-called general militia, meaning basically anybody who may be called up to serve. The second of those two is the one that the court endorsed in the Heller opinion, thus that the militia is not limited to the organized groups, but really encompasses effectively, not entirely, but effectively most of the people. So I'm going to give you a second quote now, and this is from the Heller decision. It says that the inherent right of self-defense has been central to the Second Amendment right. Now, self-defense, that is a different concept than the militia. So how did we get from a, a Second Amendment that explicitly refers to one purpose to a Supreme Court decision that is now endorsing this other purpose? It was really a move in scholarship, in commentary, in litigation to try to focus the Second Amendment away from the militia and onto these so-called private purposes. This is what's often known as the individual rights view, the core of which would be a right to armed self-defense. And that was largely successful. Um, we saw sort of more and more articles making this argument in law reviews and in public commentary and then eventually filtering its way up into courts. Now, it's important to note that until after 2000, there's not a single federal court case anywhere in the United States striking down a gun law on Second Amendment grounds. There's two district court cases got overturned on appeal. It just was inert as a matter of sort of law in terms of its practical impact. Heller comes around and, and says that the core interest of the Second Amendment is self-defense. Now, that radically changes the potential impact of that right in terms of which, which laws might be, called, might be called into question. But, and I think this is, uh, this is a continuing challenge for the courts and for the Supreme Court now as it's starting to reconsider the Second Amendment, is actually what does that mean? Um, because the right to keep and bear arms is not the same as the right to self-defense. Right? The right to self-defense is the actual act of defending yourself against an imminent threat. It's governed by legal rules like necessity and proportionality and reasonableness. And the Second Amendment is really a right to have an implement on hand if that need is ever to arise. And what the empirical studies tell us is it arises very rarely, even for gun owners. Something in like one in 3,500 guns is ever used in self-defense, meaning that very few guns are ever used for self-defense. And about 1% of self-defense actions involve a gun, meaning, again, very little of the sort of, if you think about it as a Venn diagram, very little of the circle that encompasses self-defense involves guns, very little of the uh, circle that encompasses guns involves self-defense. There's not a ton of linkage, actually, in practice between those two things. But as a matter of rhetoric and as a matter of what the Supreme Court held in Heller anyway, the core of the Second Amendment now is self-defense. Heller is an originalist decision. Like, like, you know, the argument in Heller is that the Second Amendment, as it was understood when it was ratified in the 1790s, leads to the self-defense theory. And I mean, I know there's a lot of scholarly debate about how to do originalism properly, but I'm not aware of any originalists who believe that the Constitution should be interpreted as it was originally understood by the Texas Law Review in the 1980s. So, so I, I mean, what, what's going on here? Like, like, how do we get to an originalist decision if the impetus that got us there is scholarship from the 20th century? The story really does emerge in scholarship. What the Supreme Court ends up 
holding in Heller is informed by, at that point, decades of, some of it industry-funded, scholarship in law reviews and other outlets. And in fact, Heller, I always find this striking, Justice Scalia's majority opinion cites more secondary sources and cites them more often than it does all traditional legal materials like cases and constitutional provisions and statutes combined. In other words, the court seems to be pulling directly on this sort of decades of, again, some of it funded, some of it not, uh, scholarship in law reviews and, uh, and other outlets. Now, there's a lot you can take away from that. One is just that, you know, a concerted effort to change the meaning of a constitutional provision can succeed over time. It, could, it can succeed in multiple different directions. We've seen that in lots of different areas of constitutional law. This is just uh, another example of it. But I guess I'd also say that, you know, the debate continues. Um, Justice Scalia's opinion is certainly an originalist opinion, but so is Justice Stevens' lead dissent, drawing on some of the same sources, citing back and forth to each other about Joseph's story and how we should interpret what he said. So, so what does it say, though, about the Constitution and I guess the stability of law in general that you can have a period of over 200 years where the, the Second Amendment largely wasn't viewed as the domain of the judiciary. And then the case reaches the Supreme Court. And like you said, in Heller, you had five conservative justices who looked at the law and the text and the history and the and like all of the proper originalist methodology. And they came to the conclusion that the result that conservatives like is the correct result. And then you had four liberal justices and they did the exact same thing. They looked at the exact same sources, the exact same history. They used the exact same originalist methodology. And they came to the conclusion that the result that liberals prefer is the right result. So, I mean, just what does this say about the nature of law? <laughs> That's a very deep question. I think there's really two questions wrapped up in there, Ian. One is about constitutional change and what counts as constitutional change, what counts as legitimate constitutional change. And another is about what it means to interpret a constitution in keeping with sort of originalist uh, interpretive methods. So on the constitutional change point, um, it, is, it, is, it is stark that for more than two centuries, there is no federal case anywhere in the country striking down a gun law on Second Amendment grounds. And now, since 2008, we've had 15 or more Second Amendment challenges ever since Heller was decided. Most of them unsuccessful, but all of a sudden the Second Amendment is this active site of constitutional contestation, which it was not before. That is striking. On the other hand, I, sh I guess I should note that the First Amendment was inert for most of its history as well, and it really wasn't until the early 1900s that the court started to kind of figure out what it was all about with opinions like Justice Holmes' famous dissent in the, in the Abrams case. The Second Amendment now is kind of like where the First Amendment was in the 1920s and the 1930s, which is all these huge open questions. What is the scope of the right? What is the doctrine going to look like? And you know, whether that ends up being a success story for a law or a failure, I think, depends on where the justices steer it from here on out. That goes to your second question about sort of originalist legal methods and should we regard Heller as a sort of vindication, sort of the highest stage of originalism, or does this really call the method into question? And certainly there are people who've held it up both to celebrate. This is the greatest, you know, originalist opinion, majority opinion the court has ever issued. It's probably Justice Scalia's most important majority opinion in a constitutional case. Um, um, certainly some who celebrate it that way. I, I don't take it as a win. Um, I think Heller would be much more persuasive had it been written, frankly, as a living constitutionalist opinion. Because by the time it was decided, 75% of Americans agreed with the proposition that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. The opinion came down when Obama and McCain were campaigning against each other. They both, by the end of the day, came out to express their agreement with it. Like the battle had been won. It wasn't won though in the historical sources. Like nothing new came to light that would justify that big of a change. And, I, and the reason I think that matters so much is that the court currently seems to be contemplating an even more historical turn in the way that it adjudicates Second Amendment cases and the doctrine that it sets. And I think that's, I think that's troubling. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking about this so far as if like, this is a conversation among scholars and experts and, you know, people delving very seriously into the history. And I mean, you're a law professor. I'm a guy who at least plays legal, a legal scholar on TV. Like, I think this is a conversation that's very complimentary to our professional choices. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but like, I feel like there's something else going on beyond the fact that 
a bunch of legal scholars in black robes came to a conclusion by reading scholarship. You know, there's there's a whole political movement driving, you know, the movement towards Heller and the movement towards a more expansive Second Amendment. So how does that influence the court? I think that's absolutely right. And this is one of the reasons I think actually that Heller would have been more persuasive had it been written as a living constitutionalist opinion, recognizing constitutional change that had happened, sort of bubbled up from democratic politics and constitutional culture. I mean, that's where the gun rights movement won the biggest wins. It was, before, it was long before the case was ever filed. It was in sort of convincing three quarters of Americans that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for, uh, for private purposes like self-defense. It's tough to really chart, you know, the extent of that change, but just two data points quotes that people often sort of throw out, um, you know, both Robert Bork and Warren Berger, who were hardly like, you know, wild-eyed lefty advocates uh, in the 1980s and early 1990s were referring to this, and this is quoting Berger, as uh, the idea that the Second Amendment protects an individual right is the greatest piece of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, perpetuated on the American people by a special interest group in my lifetime. That's Warren Berger talking. This is not, you know, um, uh, this is, again, not some wild-eyed lefty gun grabber, yeah, right? N- Nixon appointee. Exactly, exactly. And and Robert Bork agreed in less, you know, flowery terms, but the same basic, same basic notion. And yet, by the time the case is decided in 2008, you have soon to be President Obama agreeing with the individual rights interpretation, right? That is, to your point, something that happened way outside, way before the, the, uh, the case was ever filed. That's a change in constitutional, constitutional culture. That's still, frankly, where a lot of the lines are being drawn about how we regulate guns in this country. It's not that courts are striking down a lot of gun laws. We're not yet at that stage. It's just that we don't pass gun laws in the first place or we repeal the gun laws that we have. And so now there are 21 states and you can carry a gun concealed in public without a permit. That, that's not a constitutional command, although it's called constitutional carry. That's just a political choice. And that shapes the Supreme Court's decision just as it shapes gun practices day to day. So one way that I guess the tail is starting to wag the dog here is, you know, not only do you have like groups like the NRA advocate for a political position that shapes who gets put on the Supreme Court and then you get different types of constitutional decisions. But now the NRA and, you know, related groups are getting involved in the judicial confirmations process itself. So the the first Supreme Court justice that I think the NRA ever took a position on at all was Sonia Sotomayor, Obama's first nominee. And since then, they have opposed every single Democrat who has been who has been nominated to the Supreme Court. How do you think that changes, you know, both our judicial politics, but just the nature of the court that I mean, obviously, the NRA isn't the first political lobby to figure out that judicial nominees are really important. But the more that get involved in the game, you you know, how does that change the nature of our judiciary? I'm not sure that judicial confirmations are even their biggest win. I think that the biggest win has been creating a nationwide state-level network of members who are willing to turn out at every city council meeting, at every state legislature. I mean, we see this with the armed rallies in places like Michigan or Virginia or wherever else. I think that's where the real work is being done right now. Now, of course, the judicial confirmations are hugely important and, you know, does Justice Kavanaugh get nominated or picked without his dissent in the Heller 2 opinion, which is a very welcome decision for the NRA? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not close enough to the politics to know on that. Um, you know, but likewise for Justice Barrett, she wrote a very prominent dissent in a case called Cantor, again, welcomed by gun rights advocates. It certainly played a role in, um, in, in support for her. Now with the case pending before the court, we'll have a chance to see kind of how that how that pays off. The Supreme Court just has not issued as many Second Amendment decisions as it has in, you know, with campaign finance or, you know, other areas. So it's kind of tough to know how these bets are going to play out or how they how they have played out. One more thing, I guess, to close off this point about how politics influences the law and the law influences politics is the rhetoric that I I mean that I even see from judges and Supreme Court justices st- often strikes me as extraordinary. So, you know, Heller was decided in 2008, you know, and that was the first decision holding that there's an individual right to bear arms. Two years later, there's another case called McDonald, and I'm going to read a quote from the McDonald decision. 
The framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment counted the right to keep and bear arms among those fundamental rights necessary to our system of ordered liberty. Now, I mean, the words ordered liberty actually have a specific legal meaning, but still, like, is the Supreme Court really saying that ordered liberty did not exist in the United States until the Heller decision in 2008? To your point about rhetoric and McDonald, one thing that's really interesting that happens in that case, which I think escaped notice at the time, certainly escaped my notice, but has now become maybe the predominant rhetorical frame for gun rights advocates, is that Justice Alito, who writes the majority opinion in McDonald, says almost in passing that we will not treat the Second Amendment as a second-class right. Now, he's responding to a very specific argument, which is that Chicago, which is the defendant in McDonald, had asked that the court not incorporate the Second Amendment, meaning not make um, states and local governments bound by the Second Amendment, which just stay something that applies to the federal government. And most rights have been incorporated. So this was sort of asking for like differential treatment, if you like, for the Second Amendment. And Justice Alito said, no, we won't do that. We're not going to treat the Second Amendment as a second class right. He's referring to that very specific argument. But since then, advocates, judges, people in political commentary have just taken that language and run with it. Um, and I'm actually working on a paper right now with uh, my co-author Eric Rubin at SMU, sort of charting how this happens. And it's sort of metastasized into this whole rhetorical frame, which I think fits into a general mindset of persecution and, you know, we're the bidders and so on that, you know, this right and or, or that gun owners are being mistreated in ways that are, and you'll see gun owners argue this, that are akin to the way that, and, and I, I, I hesitate even to say this, but this is the argument, that they're being treated in the same way as black school children in the South in the 1950s. They'll actually invoke the words of massive resistance, which for any of us who are familiar with Brown and its aftermath, no, that's referring to, you know, the, the white supremacist segregationist re resistance to integrating K-12 schools. They're saying essentially that they're facing something similar in the discrimination they face from governmental actors when it comes to guns. And that mindset, I think, is just extraordinary. Um, it certainly takes advantage of this second-class right rhetoric. We saw Justice Alito referring to this exactly in his really remarkable speech to the Federalist Society um, uh, last fall. I suspect we'll see it uh, at the Supreme Court at oral arguments next month. So let's take a break here. And um, when we come back, I want to tease out some of the tension between this sort of extraordinary rhetoric that you were just talking about and what the Heller decision and the at least the cases that are in the books right now actually have to say about the scope of the Second Amendment. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, Weeds listeners, just a reminder that you're listening to a special episode of The Weeds from our Supreme Court series, which originally broadcast last fall. Welcome back. I'm Ian Milheiser. I'm here with Joseph Bloker talking about the Second Amendment and its future after the 
newly constituted Supreme Court gets its hands on it. Um, so DC v. Heller was not a total loss for proponents of gun control. There's a whole section in that opinion laying out here are the sorts of things that government can still do to regulate guns. So could you just walk us through what sort of what sort of gun regulations are still permissible under existing law? Absolutely. And I just want to highlight that if there's one takeaway from Heller that I think gets missed, it's it's exactly what you said, which is that Heller makes it perfectly clear that gun regulation is not categorically unconstitutional, that various forms of gun regulation are perfectly consistent with the Second Amendment, that the right to keep and bear arms, like all constitutional rights, is subject to various forms of regulation. Now, the way the court says this, in its opinion, is nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms, which I know is a lot of words, but it should be read right next to the words of the Second Amendment in terms of the sort of com combination here of rights and regulation that have coexisted since the founding, continue to coexist now. Um, Justice Scalia goes on, by the way, to say that the majority of 19th century courts to consider the question um, held that prohibitions on concealed carrying of weapons was also consistent with the Second Amendment. And the court even goes on to say, everything we've listed here is not exhaustive. This is just some examples of laws that are presumptively constitutional, presumptively legal, right? That's potentially a long list. It describes actually a lot of the, the, the prohibitions that existed under, uh, under federal law. What the court doesn't tell us, at least not clearly, is why those regulations are constitutional and not others, right? The court just said, the Supreme Court just said in Heller, basically, we'll let the lower courts figure that out. Now, in the 12 years since Heller, there have been more than 1,500 cases in the lower courts where state and federal courts have been trying to figure out that question. And the dust has started to settle a little bit. You know, there's lots of different kinds of gun laws and there's lots of different approaches and, you know, each case looks different. But at a very broad level, the federal courts of appeal have unanimously endorsed what's called the two-part test or the two-part framework. The first question in that uh, in that framework is a threshold inquiry about whether the Second Amendment comes into play at all, because Heller makes it clear that there are certain kinds of guns and certain people and certain activities that just are not covered by the Second Amendment, kind of in the same way that libel or securities fraud don't count as speech for purposes of the First Amendment, even though they involve words. They're just off the island. They just don't get coverage at all. Right. So some things fall out there. Do you think that, I mean, setting aside the two-part framework, just the language in Heller saying that there are limits on the Second Amendment is going to have staying power. And, and one reason why I think it might not is Justice Stevens, the, the dissenter in Heller, shortly before he died, um, I believe he revealed this in an interview with The New York Times' as Adam Liptak. He said, oh, yeah, the reason why that language was in there is because Justice Kennedy was the swing vote. And he insisted that it be in there or he wouldn't have joined the majority opinion. And Justice Kennedy isn't a justice anymore. You know, neither for that matter. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was another dissenter in, in, in Heller, died and was and, and was replaced. And so if that mitigating language was Anthony Kennedy's baby, you know, can it be sustained in the absence of Anthony Kennedy? It's a tough one to answer because the records, like what we know about the justices, even the current justices' holdings on the Second Amendment, is still somewhat limited. We got a sense of where uh, now Justice Kavanaugh is because of things he said when he was then Judge Kavanaugh. Likewise for Justice Barrett when she was Judge Barrett. Um, Justice Gorsuch, we don't have, he doesn't have a record on guns in the same way that, you know, some other justices, you may have a record of what he thinks about Chevron deference or whatever else, right? It's just not quite as, 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 as well developed. I think there's likewise for the chief justice, although he's no longer the median, um, <clears throat> likewise also for Justice Alito. I mean, I think there were many people who thought, well, Justice Alito is a former federal prosecutor. Certainly he must have sympathy for the kinds of gun laws that Justice Alito enumerated in Heller, sorry, that Justice Scalia enumerated in Heller as being constitutional, like prohibition on possession by felons, prohibitions on possession by the mentally ill, those are enumerated in federal law. No way a former federal prosecutor is going to vote to strike down gun laws, which the Solicitor General, even when it was Paul Clement and Heller, stood up to defend, right? But I don't know. Um, Justice Alito has said things publicly and in his dissent from the dismissal of the Second Amendment case last year that suggests he really thinks this right is being mistreated and under-enforced. And I can imagine that a response to that might be to 
jack up the level of scrutiny, to uh, Im uh, impose like a higher level of judicial oversight and deregulation on these laws. And maybe he doesn't know which way the cards are going to fall and what that, how that's going to impact sort of public safety. But, you know, to, to your point, it is seems undoubtedly true that that language that I read off earlier was put there to placate Justice Kennedy and to get his vote, the necessary fifth vote. He is no longer necessary. The median has moved sharply. Um, where it lands, though, is it's still still we're not sure. So let's talk about Kavanaugh and Barrett, since they you know really do seem to have articulated fairly robust views about the Second Amendment, you know at least when they were on the lower courts. Um, so you know, tell me where they fall on this. So the big thing here is the sort of methodological stakes. So what I just described a minute ago, this two-part framework for evaluating gun laws is the overwhelming, literally unanimous framework adopted in the lower federal courts right now. But there is an alternative test, which was just generally associated with the dissenting opinion Justice Kavanaugh wrote when he was on the D.C. Circuit, which is called the test of text, history, and tradition. And what this test would do is evaluate gun laws based solely on text, history, and tradition, right? If a gun law lacks the sort of you know, requisite historical pedigree, then it is maybe presumptively unconstitutional. And, and, and that's the, the text of the Second Amendment. The text of the Second, exactly. Which again, as we, as we said at the very outset, it's 27 words that don't answer a whole lot of questions. You can stare at those words as long as you want. It's not going to tell you whether, you know, a large capacity magazine is a, an arm for purposes of the Constitution or whether a person convicted of a domestic violence crime is among the people to whom this right extends. So the text, I don't think, gets you very far. History is a mixed bag, not because there we lack a history of gun regulation. Actually, we have a very robust history of gun regulation. It often gets overlooked. Um, and I should plug here, Duke hosts something called the Repository of Historical Gun Laws. It's a free online resource. Anybody who doesn't believe me can have a, have a look. It covers gun laws up until 1934. It's not even comprehensive and has 1,500 examples of historical gun laws in it. What I think is worrisome about this test of text, history, and tradition is just that it... The history doesn't speak with one voice. We have very different regional approaches to guns. In the South, concealed carry was restricted even before it was restricted in other areas because concealed carry was thought to be unmanly, the kind of thing an assassin would do, et cetera, et cetera. Public carry of guns was not as common in New England. It was more heavily regulated there. Like, How do you draw a national rule based on these very different um, approaches? The big difference was between cities and rural areas. And cities, including in the famous sort of gun towns of the Old West, places like Dodge City and Tombstone, Arizona, gun possession in city limits was illegal. Like you literally checked your gun when you arrived at the city limits. Like how do you average all that history together just doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense to me. I think the more troubling thing, and this goes to our sort of continuing conversation about originalism, is that it's just really hard to try to draw useful parallels between the late 1700s or the mid 1800s and today, especially when it comes to a rapidly changing technology like firearms. So some courts have tried to sort of chart the boundaries of the Second Amendment by looking to the quote-unquote lineal descendants of guns or gun regulations in the late 1700s, but judges aren't historians and guns don't have progeny. There's not like a family tree that you can draw to figure out where an AR-15's family line goes, right? Is a, is a modern grenade launcher like a musket in the sort of relevant sense because you can carry it? because uh, people could lift it, or is it not because of its massive destructive power? Like these are all to me just like existential questions that don't have anything to do with what either gun rights advocates or gun regulators should care about. This is just it's just historical pedantry for no real purpose. But that's where a test based solely on text history and tradition could take us. The other place it could take us though is maybe even worse, which is that since the history is almost always going to be unclear and contested, is that judges are going to end up sort of making these comparisons based on their own unarticulated and probably inarticulable uh, intuitions about two things being similar or not. That's not even doing law at that point to me. That's just like, uh, it's just like analogical reasoning with no real restriction. And judges, I think, will give in to their biases. Now, maybe there'll be biases you like, maybe they won't, but it's not going to be articulable in the way that I think the sort of current two-part framework is. That brings to the surface the stuff that we care about, as opposed to just sort of hiding it in the sort of historical analogies. Very, very few murders, even though there are a lot of, you know, whenever there's a mass shooting involving an assault rifle, it gets a lot of attention. That is a tiny percentage of murders in the United States. 
the majority, I believe the overwhelming majority of gun murders in the United States, about 7,000 out of 11,000 in 2017, were committed with a handgun. And I mean, it makes sense. Like you can conceal a handgun. You know, most murders look more like there's a bar fight that should have been a fist fight and it becomes a murder because someone has a gun. Two spouses are arguing. And because someone has a gun, it becomes something more. And yet Heller was very clear that the handgun is the super protected weapon. And so, you know, what are we supposed to do? Like, do the limits on Heller actually mean very much? If the deadliest weapon in the United States has the most constitutional protection, the debate about assault weapons, which, you know, other people, people fight even about the label there. It should be called modern sporting rifles. It should just we should just know that it's a semi-automatic rifle, which it is, um, I think, just draws so much oxygen sometimes in a way that is not always helpful. Um, I mean, I would add that mass shootings, as horrific as they are, and the fact, you know, and I think we should be clear when we talk about mass shootings, that the ripple effects go far beyond the number of people who are actually killed in a mass shooting. So we shouldn't underestimate that. But they still constitute a tiny tiny percentage of the actual gun deaths in the United States every year. Most deaths, most gun deaths in the United States every year are deaths by suicide, which law can do something to prevent. But even if we focus on the homicides, it really is a, it is a handgun problem. It is disproportionately a problem in urban areas. And it is a problem that does not affect everybody equally demographically. Like we're talking about, you know, a, a country in which young black men are 15 to 20 times more likely to die of gun violence than white men. It's the leading cause of death for young black men. Like that's an extraordinary extraordinary discrepancy and that's handgun violence overwhelmingly justice Breyer points this out in his heller dissent like the same things that according to the majority opinion make handguns a useful self-defense weapon are precisely the characteristics that make handguns attractive to criminals they're concealable they're really easy to use and there's not i don't it's there's not an easy way to kind of break that symmetry um but you know one way to do it is through the kinds of laws that new york has for example um uh, california new jersey massachusetts and others which at least require permits for carrying guns in public places and require some kind of showing of good cause before you do it. That's allowing people to have their handguns at home for self-defense at the core interest protected in Heller, but it's also minimizing the number of interactions that a person carrying a handgun is going to have with others that might turn into the bar fight or a fight over a parking place or a mask in a store or whatever else. And, you know, look the headlines every day. You can see examples of those. So that's a good segue to, I guess, the reason why we're having this conversation in the first place. And that's, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, the case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now. So just tell me about that case. What's at stake in it? What's the specific law? And, you know, how do you think it's likely to turn out? This is a challenge to New York's requirement that an applicant who's seeking an unrestricted license to carry a concealed handgun has to show proper cause. Now, in New York, it is illegal to openly carry a handgun. So the only way to carry a handgun in public would be concealed and therefore with, um, with one of these licenses um, in order to show proper cause. The statute doesn't define what proper cause is, but New York courts have interpreted it to mean that a person has to demonstrate a special need for self-defense above and beyond um, that of the general community. So you have to have some kind of particular reason, like maybe you work uh, in, a, uh, in a risky job or you've been, you know, you're being stalked by someone or some particular reason, particular, particularized need for, self, for self-defense. And this is a law that's been on the books for a really long time, hasn't it? More than a century. And this goes back to Heller, where, you know, in Heller, the court says that these, quote unquote, long-standing laws are presumptively lawful. And the court there refers to, for example, the prohibition on possession by felons. You know, that was not a prohibition in federal law until really the 1930s, arguably until the 1960s. So this law is older in basically its current iteration than, than any of those. In this particular case, the petitioners were not able to show proper cause, so they were not able to get their licenses. Um, they received restricted carry permits, which means they can take guns in certain places, but basically just unpopulated areas. Of course, they can still have handguns in their homes for self-defense on their own premises. That's the holding of Heller. But they argue nonetheless that this restrictive regime violates their Second Amendment rights. Now, I think there's really two things that are significant about the case. One is sort of a substantive point. The other is a methodological point. On the substantive point, the New York law is similar to laws on the books in some other large states. We can sort of divide licensing schemes for public carry really into two categories. There are those that say a licensing agent 
shall issue a permit to anybody who meets the statutory criteria, like who isn't a felon or a fugitive from justice or whatever. Those are called the shall issue states. And then there are those that say that the licensing authority may issue a license to a person who is qualified. Usually in those may issue states, that means that the person has to also show some kind of justifiable need, good reason, proper cause. The phrases are a little bit different to carry a gun in public. Now, those states, that includes places like California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, uh, New York. These are states with a combined population of like 80 million people. So there's a lot of people affected by those laws. If New York's gets struck down, it could well be that those laws are next on the next on the chopping block. So substantively, this is a really important question. Methodologically, it's a really important question because the court may, especially with these sort of new appointments, adopt a whole new test for evaluating other kinds of Second Amendment laws going forward. And I think what people are really focused on is that the court may adopt this test of text, history, and tradition, the sort of purely originalist approach to the Second Amendment, and then use that to replace the two-part framework which has been adopted thus far uh, throughout the courts of appeal. And that would be a major change in Second Amendment doctrine and would really sort of throw into question what we sort of thought we knew from the 1,500 or more cases that have been decided since Heller. So those are the two things I'll be watching is the sort of substantive what's going to happen with the New York law, but sort of almost more importantly or more broadly, the methodological question of, is the court going to adopt this test of text, history, and tradition? And on that, I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, I filed a brief in the case arguing that the court should not adopt the test of text, history, and tradition. I think that would be a bad idea. So I want to close this conversation by taking this to, I guess, an even darker place than where, we, where we've already been. So like, in addition to like the self-defense rationale that was articulated by Heller, Gun rights advocates often articulate, I, I guess I'll describe it as kind of an anti-tyranny argument. You know, the, the idea is that guns are what allow you to stand up to your own government. And, you know, if, if we were having this conversation a year ago, I would have made a mocking comment at this point. Like, you know, really, you're going to take your handgun and take on the U.S. Army with that? Like, you, you think that's going to work? But then January 6th happened. And like, I think it's now clear that ordinary people with ordinarily available guns could potentially do a great deal to disrupt the functioning of a state government or the federal government. So what are we supposed to do about that? And what are we supposed to do about that after a decision in Bruin that could potentially lead to many more guns being even more readily available? I think one thing we're really seeing is sort of a shift in what are the paradigm scenes of gun use? Like what comes to mind, you know, when a person thinks about the Second Amendment or a person thinks about the right to keep and bear arms? Heller's paradigm scene is a person holding a gun on an intruder while they call the police, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's self-defense against an armed criminal invader. And that's just not the full reality of gun use, especially in the last 10 years. Um, at the time Heller was decided, we hadn't really seen the just outburst of armed protest that we've seen since then. I mean, if you go back as far, at least as the sort of Bundy ranching protest, you're seeing sort of more and more of these uh, self-appointed sort of vigilante posses, groups um, invading places of democratic engagement and democratic discussion. Um, I think even more than January 6th, which you know, fortunately didn't involve as many firearms as it might have um, if it were in another jurisdiction with less stringent gun laws than D.C. The one that stands out to me is what happened in the Michigan legislature last spring when hundreds of armed individuals stormed the state legislature, nominally opposing the, the state uh, mask mandates that Governor Whitmer was um, then supporting, and successfully forced the legislature to shut down. I mean, that that is, it, it's harder for me to come up with a better like image uh, better more clear image of what it would mean to assault the body politic they they literally invaded the legislature which by the way itself was not illegal under Michigan law at the time. Michigan did not, although it forbade the carrying of signs in the legislative chamber, did not forbid the carrying of guns. Now, that's one example to your question, what can change? That's something that can change. We, doesn't, we don't have to accept, the Constitution doesn't require us to accept, and nor do our, you know, nor do our sort of shared political commitments require us to accept that people who are armed can dominate public spaces and essentially treat people with whom they disagree as if they are political threats. You know, it's almost like, it's almost like they're reading political disagreement 
through Heller's self-defense lens, whether it's, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters and armed counter-protesters showing up to terrify them. What worries me, you know, I think January 6th hopefully, you know, makes people think about this, but what worries me more is that we just don't have a sense of how many people have been deterred from protesting or voting or speaking up or peaceably assembling precisely because they're terrified that they will be confronted by, you know, armed mercenaries, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, who are who are going to threaten them with weapons. That is that is a harm to other people's constitutional interests. And it has to has to factor into the calculation here. Well, Joseph Bloker, thank you so much for joining me and for um, walking us through what you think the future of the Second Amendment is going to look like. Thanks so much, Ian. I really enjoyed it. Let's take another break and then we'll come back with my conversation with Carol Anderson. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the special rebroadcast of The Most Dangerous Branch, a well-regulated militia. Here's Ian Milheiser. Welcome back. I'm Ian Milheiser. My second guest is Carol Anderson. Carol is one of the nation's leading historians of racism in the United States, and her latest book is The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We talked about how gun rights have historically been used to oppress and endanger people of color, and especially African Americans. Carol Anderson, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. So you begin your book, The Second, with a fairly provocative claim. I'll, I'll just read a quote from the book here, which is that the Second Amendment, quote, was designed and has consistently been constructed to keep African-Americans powerless and vulnerable. So before we dig deep down to the details of that, give me the elevator pitch. You, you know, you give me the summary of that argument. The summary of that argument is that the Second Amendment was really born out of the fear of Black people. And how do we use guns and the militia in order to protect the white community from African Americans? So a big part of your argument is that racism was inherent to the very purpose of the Second Amendment. And that's at odds with what at least some scholars have said about the amendment. Um, Akhil Amar at Yale, for example, has argued that the primary purpose of the Second Amendment was a kind of preservation of local control. There would be local militias that could serve as a check against the federal government and specifically against a standing army. So... Tell me the case for your theory. Why do you think that Akil's theory and other theories of the Second Amendment may not fully capture the role that race played in the creation of the Second Amendment? Um, so as I'm reading through the, the constitutional ratification conventions, what I'm seeing is the role of the militia was there to, to quell slave revolts in order to put the enslaved down. And so when when George Mason in Virginia is, is just railing against James Madison because Madison had put control of the militia in the Constitution under federal control. It's like, we will be left defenseless. We cannot trust those folks in the federal government who will be from Pennsylvania, who will be from Massachusetts, who are already uh, providing for the end of slavery in their states. We can't trust them when we have a slave revolt in order to send the militia down to protect us. And so it is the saliency of, of, of slavery, the saliency of white fear of black people that is, to me, central to the Second Amendment. 
One thing that strikes me about your argument that the Second Amendment was racist in its intent, you know, th- th- this is an ar- this is an issue that comes up all the time in the law, you know, an anti-discrimination law. There's some people who believe that only intentional discrimination should be forbidden and other people who believe that laws that have a disparate impact on the basis of, of race um, should also be forbidden. And, and I guess my question is, should we care about this distinction? You know, does it matter if the Second Amendment was racist in intent, if in fact it, it you know it is leading towards negative impacts on people of color? For me, disparate impact is as important as intent. And this argument about the Second Amendment that I was looking at dealt with the rights of African Americans. That's where I began hunting because it came out of the Philando Castile killing. Prosecutor John Choi said today that Philando Castile was shot seven times by Officer Geronimo Yenez less than a minute after being pulled over. The question then became, well, don't African-Americans have Second Amendment rights? And I went, wow, that's a great question. And I went hunting. And what I found was the answer was really no, because the Second Amendment was really designed to control and contain Black people. Yeah, no, the, the striking thing, and you know, for our listeners who, who don't remember the details of, of that killing, Philando Castile was a black man who was pulled over. He was legally carrying a firearm with him. And like the two things that strike me, I mean, one was that he was killed despite the fact that he wasn't breaking any law. But the other thing that stands out to me is that the groups that normally would weigh in when someone's gun rights are so brutally taken away, um, you know, the NRA, there was a conspicuous silence there. You know, why do you think there was such silence? The silence that was there from the NRA was so striking because this is the same NRA that went full bore against the federal government at Ruby Ridge and at Waco, calling the federal officers jackbooted government thugs. And so when it came to then the killing of a Black man, it took pressure from African Americans in the NRA to get the NRA to make any kind of statement. And it was this milk toast. Well, we believe that everybody has the right to, to bear arms, regardless of race, religion, you know, sexual orientation. Um, and then African-Americans pushed further and the NRA came back with, well, we can't really say anything until the investigation is over. That was so non-NRA-like that (laughs) that's what led the journalists and the pundits to question, well, don't African-Americans have Second Amendment rights? And when you're seeing the way that the NRA is responding to this, the answer is no. So I'm interested in your reaction to there's a brief filed by several public defender groups in the big Second Amendment case. You're you're nodding your head. So I think you know which brief I'm referring to. Um, And the argument is essentially that, look, most of our clients are black and brown. They are arrested for carrying firearms. You know, it's an argument very similar to what I sometimes hear from marijuana abolitionists that, you know, the people who are arrested for possessing this legal item are disproportionately people of color. And so if the court were to step in and say it's no longer illegal, you know, then you wouldn't have all these impacts on these communities. So what's your reaction to that brief? That brief is powerful. Um, But as I read that brief, it didn't deal to me, which is the underlying issue in American society, and that is anti-Blackness, that fear of Black people. So that we've, yes, we've got this legal system, this policing system that targets Black folks. That is without a doubt. But what happens is that when Black is the default threat in American society, Being Black and unarmed, already you're threatening. Being Black with the possibility of being armed doesn't take that threat away. In fact, it increases it exponentially. So you can see that in a system that sees Blacks as the threat, that having wild, open, concealed carrying in where everybody can carry in New York is not going to lessen the threat against Black people from law enforcement. In fact, it's going to heighten it. So I'm interested in your thoughts on how, I guess, the presence of guns impacts police behavior. 
You know, because I, I can imagine if I were a cop and I knew that everyone I have an interaction with might have a firearm, you know, that's going to make me more paranoid. That's going to change the interaction. And if you layer on top of that, that some cops may be racist just for systemic reasons, they're likely to have more interactions with people of color. You know, you, you, it's, it's easy to see how tragedies emerge there. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that situation. And that's exactly what I see. Take the killing of Philando Castile, which we, we spoke about earlier. Um, the police officer there said, he said he had a gun. I was afraid. I was afraid. Or we take the killing of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old in Cleveland, Ohio, who was playing by himself in a park with a toy gun. Now, granted, it didn't have the orange tip on it that said, hey, I'm a toy. But Ohio is an open carry state. And he's open carrying in an area where there's nobody else there. So he's not threatening anybody. The police rolled right up on him and they shot him within two seconds. And the officer who, who pulled the trigger said, we were afraid. We were in danger. So that, that fear, that danger is always there. You add guns to it and it takes it to a lethal level. So let's talk about the Mulford Act. This is a law banning public carry of weapons in California in 1967. It was signed by Governor Ronald Reagan, who is not normally someone we think of as a big gun control advocate. Um, it's actually named after a lawmaker, Don Mulford, who was a famous reactionary. You know, the other thing that he was famous for is trying to ban protests of the Vietnam War on Berkeley's campus. So what was going on in 1967 that made these very conservative Republicans decide that maybe they thought gun control is a good idea? So what was happening is that there was a massive police brutality happening in Oakland. And there, there was no accountability in the system for that police brutality. No matter how much African-Americans went to, to officials saying, get these folks off of us. We need decent policing. And that just wasn't happening. So out of that arose the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, led by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. And one of their, their key elements was that self-defense piece. The Black Panther Party has attracted strong national support from radicals and intellectuals, black and white. The Panthers openly advocate the use of guns against the police, claiming that they don't attack, but will only shoot in self-defense, a point disputed by Bay Area law enforcement agencies. They were going to police the police. And so Huey Newton, who was a law school student, he knew the... Um, the laws. He knew California's open carry law. And so the Panthers would roll up on an arrest, openly carrying their weapons. They knew what kinds of weapons to carry, what kinds not to carry. They knew how to carry those weapons. And they knew how far they had to stay away from the police as the police were making these arrests. And so being monitored like that, the police hated it. Absolutely hated it. And they would pull over the Panthers and try to arrest them for something, but they were always legally carrying. And so the police ran to Don Mulford and said, we need help. We need to make what the Panthers are doing illegal because right now it's legal. And Mulford's like, hey, I'm there um, and started drafting the law with the help of the NRA started drafting this Mulford Act. And Ronald Reagan is like, as soon as you get that bill on my desk, I'm signing it. And so it was the way to turn the Panthers' strategy to make that legal strategy illegal. Notice, though, what they didn't do. They didn't have legislation that would make the police accountable for the brutality that was raining down on that Black community. So instead, the issue was, how do we make the Black Panthers for self-defense illegal? So the culmination of a lot of the Black Panthers protests was a protest at the state capitol, where many of them showed up openly carrying firearms. And we saw a, a bit of a repeat of that in Michigan last year, where a group of protesters who didn't like COVID public health restrictions also showed up carrying a bunch of firearms. Uh, the difference is that the ones in Michigan were white. Yes. <laughs> and one thing that strikes me about Michigan's response, they did eventually ban 
open carry of firearms in the Capitol, but you can still bring a concealed weapon into, into the Michigan Capitol. And like, I'm sympathetic to the California lawmakers in 1967 who thought, y- you know, I don't want guns in my workplace. Like, I, I, that, I, I hold the same view about my own workplace. That's fine. And I guess my question is, why don't lawmakers in Michigan have a better self-protection instinct um, than, than the ones in California way back in the day? And I really think it's because, again, blackness is the threat. Blackness is the danger. Those who stormed the Capitol in Michigan carrying those weapons up in the balcony, you know, where you see these rifles in the balcony, you're like, dang. But they were white, and white isn't the default threat. You think about, again, the way Dylan Roof was treated, the way that Kyle Rittenhouse was treated in Wisconsin, who was the 17 year old who. Uh, went to a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and gunned down three men, killing two of them. And the cops did not register him as a threat. White isn't the threat. That is the key variable in the response to what happens at these capitals and who's carrying the weapons. So so you mentioned that the NRA supported the the Mulford Act back in the day. And I I certainly think race is a huge part of that conversation. But I wonder if there's another thread here, which, you know, the the NRA's, you know, slogan now, I guess, is that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. There's a there's a turn against the use of the state to restrict gun violence. You know, the the idea is you can't rely on the state to protect you. You have to rely on your own personal, I I guess, your own personal armaments to to do so. And I guess my question is, and maybe this can't be decoupled from from the racial aspects, but how much of the NRA's turn is part of the broader conservative movement's turn against the government? So much of the conservatives' anti-statism is linked to race. It is linked to the way that the state has been empowered to bring about racial equality. So when you're seeing the Civil Rights Act, when you're seeing the Voting Rights Act of, you know, 64 and of 65, you're also seeing this, this massive movement that had begun a bit earlier um, because it felt like the state was too powerful because the state was weighing in on the issue of racial equality. We saw that, for instance, in 48 with Truman's executive order desegregating the military. The backlash from that from the right wing was, <laughs> you know, this is anathema. What is the role of the state in doing this? When you had the state saying, you have to desegregate your public schools. Oh, the, the, you get a rise of what they call movement conservatism. And so all of this, this, this role of the state in racial equality is part of what is driving this conservative agenda, this anti-state conservative agenda. You can't decouple it. When you asked about the um, good guy with a gun, That mantra. One of the things that I thought about was how African-Americans have been the good guys with a gun and they've been shot dead while trying to protect others. So we see that case with Emantic Bradford Jr. in Alabama, with Jamel Roberson in Chicago, and it was with a cop, an off-duty cop who was Black in St. Louis, and he was shot by another officer while trying to apprehend someone. So this good guy with a gun thing also is inflected with anti-Blackness. Is it possible to have a United States that is simultaneously very pro-gun rights while also being anti-racist? You know, can you have a regime that's very protective of gun rights that doesn't lead to negative consequences for people of color? Or are these things necessarily entwined with one another? The United States has not been willing to really fully engage in dismantling anti-Blackness. It has been more willing 
to to lead to this this massive arming of a small group of people who disproportionately have most of the privately owned weapons in this nation. The anti-Blackness, though, continues to permeate, and we see it in the backlash against the 1619 Project, against critical race theory, in the storming of these school board meetings where you don't want to teach divisive issues such as slavery. So we don't know how we got here. And when we don't know how we got here, um, while we're loading up guns and making them, um, so like in Texas, where you don't have to have any training, you don't have to license, you can just have a gun. We're not there yet. We are so not there yet. And I think of it this way. Our inability to really have true gun safety laws is steeped in anti-Blackness. It is steeped in this fear that whites will be left defenseless if they aren't able to have their guns against this so-called horde coming in, taking their stuff, taking everything that they value. And I look at a, a study by Jonathan Metzl, who wrote Dying of Whiteness, where he studied folks in Missouri who had suffered gun violence in their family. And in their self-help group, um, he's asking about gun safety laws. And they were like, absolutely not. You're not taking my gun. I'm not going to be left defenseless when all of those folks come in from St. Louis trying to take everything that I own. And so when you think about Sandy Hook, we didn't get a response to Sandy Hook. And we really should have. Because there's this fear of being left defenseless. Defenseless against whom? Congresswoman Lauren Boebert said it's because we're going to be left defenseless against the gangbangers, the thugs, and the drug dealers. We know that that is shorthand, dog whistles for African Americans. That's how that language is used in this society. So having being pro-gun and anti-Black, we are more pro-gun than we are anti-Black. <laughs> the, the chasm between those two is so wide that being pro-gun when Blackness is the, the default threat in this society makes the precariousness of Black life even more intense. Carol Anderson, thank you so much for coming on for this, uh, I guess, very intense conversation about race and guns. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. This episode originally taped last fall and was hosted by Vox's Supreme Court correspondent, Ian Milheiser. It featured an interview with Joseph Bloker, a law professor at Duke, and Carol Anderson, the chair of African-American studies at Emory. The Weeds is produced by Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 